0: This week on Pop Culture Confidential, it's all about rage. Joining us is the author of the provocative, infuriating, and inspiring book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, Soraya Shimali, here on Pop Culture Confidential. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Christina Yerling Biru. First of all, I just want to take a minute to thank you all for your feedback and messages on the past couple of brave interviews. They seem to really make an impact on many of the listeners. Luke Davies, the screenwriter of the addiction memoir Beautiful Boy, shared his own story of his struggles with addiction. And Garrett Conley, who survived gay conversion therapy and is now the focus of the movie Boy Erased, also shared his powerful story. Now, these interviews seem to have made a real impression on many of you listeners, and I really thank you for the messages I've received. And I am very grateful to these guests who shared their powerful and personal stories that so impact others. Thank you. Now, I've really been looking forward to talking to author Soraya Shimali. She's an activist and writer. She's written for Time, The Guardian, The Atlantic, and she's the director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project. Her new excellent book is Rage Becomes Her. Here, she explores women's anger and how we are taught and conditioned by society to suppress it and how it is and should be a powerful tool in our lives. Ms. Shamali, thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So your book kept pissing me off, but for a very <laughs> good cause.
1: <laughs> That's the risk. Right.
0: Um, But I'd like to start big here before we get into a few details. Anger is having such a moment in our world today at the same time that there is this vitriolic anger in politics. There's Trump and populist movements and Twitter rage it's also a fuel for injustice and change, inspiring marches and women winning positions in the latest elections. Could you kind of define um, anger from your point of view, how these can be happening at the same time?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that we all, generally speaking, learn to think of anger in almost purely negative terms as something that is risky or dangerous or hurtful, and in fact, it's usually the mismanagement of anger that results in very poor outcomes. And and I think that we're seeing, as you say, some very positive aspects of anger. Uh, it, anger is always sort of a signal emotion that, that you're under threat or insult or there's something wrong. Or in the case of the kind of anger of resentment and contempt of authoritarianism, it is the threat of loss and resentment, uh, of looking back at a sort of illusory place of power right but at the same time there is this anger that is also also a response to threat i think that is connected to compassion and empathy and social justice and the anger of not only being Mm -hmm. um sort of self-defensive because a, a lot of the anger that we're seeing is really being done by people in their own defense but also extends to the defense of others for whom you care
0: Right, right. And you were saying at the beginning there that um, we usually see anger as as something negative. It was so interesting in your book because you talk about that we don't talk to our kids about anger. We talk to them about envy and sadness and all kinds of feelings, but but not particularly feeling angry. How should we be doing that?
1: Well, it's interesting because I did a pretty deep dive into a lot of research about childhood socialization and Generally speaking, and there are obviously variations, I don't wanna say that, you know, this is not all parents, but people tend to attribute sadness to girls and emotionality to girls. So they'll talk to them about a full range of emotions and how to nurture, but they will by default not talk to them so much about anger. So even there was one study where parents were I think reading books to children and they downplayed the anger and aggression in the book when they were reading to girls. Now, the flip side of that was that they tended to focus on that when they mm-hmm. were reading to boys, and studies also show that these sort of rigid norms of masculinity mean that in terms of gendered parenting, parents are much more, much less likely to talk to boys about the the full range of emotions. And so we end up with this very gendered emotion, which is by the time kids go into school, they associate anger with men and with boys. And that's not healthy either, right? Because boys need to be able to express themselves so that they don't end up fueling aggression and violence with their anger.
0: How would you say we should be talking about it with them?
1: Well, I mean, I I don't really like the term anger management for a range of issues that I talk about in the book. But I do think in terms of anger competence, which is A sort of subset of emotional competence, which is to really allow children, regardless of their sex, gender, even sometimes it really matters, their burgeoning sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. Allow them to talk openly about their emotions, to be able to recognize their emotions. One of the big problems with anger, particularly for girls and women who are also subject to sexual objectification, which impacts our ability to read our, our body's signs, right, our, our physiology. When we self-objectify, we, we struggle to actually understand what's happening in our bodies. But to allow children to label their emotions, that's a really important quality to emotional health, to say, I am angry, give it the words, and then from there, talk about why. Uh, very often, a girl will say something, for example, and she'll be told to use her nice voice or to smile. And Um, Mm -hmm. Those are just ways of shutting down how she's feeling and not actually saying, oh, why are you upset?
0: Right, right. I mean, because despite the fact there's so many things for girls and and women to be angry about, I mean, be it uh, sexism or pay or whatever that goes on through life, it's still so taboo for a woman to be angry. Um, Going back, why is it still this way?
1: Well, uh, I mean, I, I think that it's a powerful social and political regulation, right? I mean, we effectively sever anger from the notion of good womanhood and femininity. For a lot of girls and women, that's how they grow up. And so being angry, even righteously, even in their own self-defense, feels very transgressive. It's the conflict of crying, right? A lot of women will cry, and they'll find themselves speechless when they're angry. And I think that some of that really does come from the feeling that they're doing something wrong and that to say the words I'm angry or to display a really strong, powerful anger feels wrong. It feels like I shouldn't be doing this. And that's the incompatibility with femininity that I'm talking about. But if you, you know, right. if you can't defend yourself, if you can't say what's what's bothering you, what's important to you, if you can't say what wrong is being done to you, that's really effective silencing like culturally, right?
0: I mean those those things happen in, in big the big picture, but also in the workplace. I mean I've had that happen to me many times that my role as a as a boss in, in a workplace is to sort of m- make everyone feel good. I'm not allowed to be angry <laughs> about anything. I just have to right. make sure that the temper is calm. you know everything is good and everyone's I can do it with humor, but I can't do it with anger.
1: Right And you're supposed to as a woman as an employer, as a boss, to nurture the space in a way that men are not expected to, right? You're expected to do a lot more emotional labor. And right. also office housework, right? We never talk about that, but, but to take on the more traditional roles that women have at home within the context of work. I mean, and, and honestly, if you're, anger's so interesting in the workplace for a whole variety of reasons that have to do with power, but you know, if you're a, a, a black woman or a woman of color, you're assumed to be angry if you simply speak or assert yourself right like that's a that's also really regulatory like how is someone supposed to act are they just supposed to be silent to make other people happy and comfortable that's absurd right and so all of these stereotypes about anger that Mm -hmm. you're a crazy white woman or a hot fiery latina those all actually impact our lives every day
0: what does that do to us
1: well, I mean, I think for a lot a lot of people, a lot of women, it ends up making them sick. I mean, I think that I was really surprised by how implicated the mismanagement of anger is in a wide range of mental and physical ailments. So mm-hmm. um, you know, for example, eating disorders, self-harm, various forms of depression cardiovascular illness is, suppressed immunity. I mean, even this was re- actually really interesting research. Even recalling an angry outburst was shown to suppress a person's immune system and make them more susceptible to the common cold.
0: Wow. So it's like st- stress related.
1: It's, it is. It's stress. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, very often women who report much higher levels of stress globally than men do, women will say, I'm so stressed. But in fact, what they mean is I'm really angry and I can't say that like when we say we're stressed we're actually kind of glossing over the things that are making us upset or stressed or um, tired right and those things often have to do with double standards right, and discrimination right. and um, the expectations of of being women like being mothers whether we have children or not you know and so the, we need to elaborate on those terms, I think.
0: And one of the most frustrating things is sometimes one isn't angry, one's determined or making a decision or saying something, you know, strongly, but one is accused of being angry and bitter and, and
1: That's right. <laughs> well, that's. I think that's really this this quality of distinguishing, of distinguishing. Which is bad
0: in a woman, sorry, if the man yeah, it is bad, on the other side right. um, is, is just passionate about his work and trying to make a good... <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, he gains power. Like, that's the other thing. Like, all this research really shows that when men display power, because it confirms our expectations of – when they display anger, because it it confirms our expectations of masculinity, they gain an influence. Whereas when a woman in the exact same situation does that, uh, particularly in a realm that's thought of as masculine, uh, so most workplaces except for maybe teaching or being a a nurse – Um, She loses influence and power, but that's why it's important to make this distinction between assertiveness, aggression, and anger, which a lot of people don't. They just lump those all in one thing.
0: I wanted to take a, a real example here to talk about, I mean, uh, through the years we have been seeing uh, lists and funny YouTube clips and everything about Mac, John, um, tennis player McEnroe's outbursts and how he throws his racket and what are his most uh, incredible outbursts, as if it was um, entertaining. Then when uh, Serena Williams just right. uh, passed a couple of few months ago, um, gets upset about something, the reactions are very different. Can you tell me a little bit about what you have seen in this when you've studied it?
1: Well, yes. I mean, I think that's the classic double standard that's also shows very clearly the intersection of sexism and racism. I mean, Serena Williams is highly attuned to the cross currents of discrimination in her own industry. And, and in media, I don't think probably she utters a word without thinking carefully or like a double track about what's happening. But she, you know, this episode happened. And as you say, they've been there's, you know, an endless list of men behaving egregiously, and indeed, then being called right. bad boys and charming, and you know, kind of these personalities on the court. But in her case, uh, there was just a lot of, oh my God, how could anybody behave that way? Um, it's really horrible to see whether it's men or women, which is a nice thing to say, but in actuality, is not what's happening. I mean, what is remarkable to me is that she was fined the highest ever fine for verbal abuse in the U.S. Open, right? I mean, if anybody ever has watched tennis, they yeah, will understand yeah. the absurdity of that, right? And and she knows. I mean, she said, this didn't work out for me this time, but maybe next time it will work out for someone else. So she understands the role that she plays as a very visible, prominent figure, right.
0: And we also saw an incredible example, which could, seems like it could not have been more textbook after reading your book, of um, the Kavanaugh hearings with uh, Judge Kavanaugh oh, and, and Dr. kid What do you say about the, their different reactions to um, what their testimony?
1: Well, amazing, <laughs> right? Amazing. Because this man threw an epic tantrum, and then the men around him Joined in right there were several men who became very red in the face and they thumped their their fists and and showed their righteous indignation and and more than anything to me it it showed the immense entitlement the immense entitlement to be angry in self-defense and and to then have that anger gain political like create political power and efficacy because in fact support for him went up after he did that which is quite astounding to me but people really liked the fact that he acted in that very muscular uh, macho angry way which is here I am I am roaring in indignation that my honor has been uh, challenged in this way but in fact the person who should have had the right to be the most angry in that entire chamber was Dr. Ford and yet here she was being demure and even conciliatory. I mean, I thought one of the, the most enraging and sad parts of the entire thing was when she was so deferential about, uh, her, she was very considerate about the people questioning right. her. And she said, well, I'm used to, she said, no, really, I'm used to being, I'm, I'm used to collegiality. And that was a little heartbreaking because I thought, oh my God, collegiality is something that happens between peers and people who respect each other and they respect each other's expertise and she is expecting that from this group of people and that will not be forthcoming I mean not only did they not respect her as a witness and authority in her own life to the things that had happened to her but they didn't they didn't respect her as an expert in her field because she was both of those things simultaneously
0: yeah that's pretty incredible um, and you have an interesting story in your book also. Can you tell me about what you call Toaster Boy?
1: <laughs> yes, Toaster Boy always sticks out in my head.
0: Yeah, and in mine too. Yeah, right? I was speaking at a college,
1: um, at, 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 and we were talking about sexual violence and the Internet, and um, there's a, a big disconnect among many people, particularly uh, in teenage teenagers, between connecting women's experiences in the world with sexism or misogyny or racism. And so I was sort of making the point that the non-consensual sexualization and objectification of women in texting was qualitatively different from what happens to men for a variety of reasons. But the main reason it was different, I was saying, was that, and you know, it's, it's people sexed kids sexed they usually do it within the parameters of a relationship but often not and then it becomes non consensual and often that's called revenge porn and girls Mm -hmm. do it to boys boys do it to girls men women etc but starting around the age 11 12 13 it turns out that boys are doing it at a rate of um at least three times more than girls so they're sharing girls images without consent which is a big difference right there's there's no reversibility in the instance of, this, of these things happening. And so a young man in the class, and I said this has to do with misogyny and sexism. It has to do with the fact that boys gain, that you know they get cred for passing along these images of, of girls, and that it comes right. at the girls, their status comes at the girls' expense. And um, so one of these young men said, uh, well, you know, if a girl... Sends me her picture, uh, and it and it's mine. What's the difference if I share that? Like, what's the difference between sharing that and a picture of my toaster? The picture is mine. And wow. we that we were winding down. We only had about five minutes left, and I was I had like eight things going through my head at once, and I thought, Wow, I, do I really need to explain that a girl isn't a toaster? Like, <laughs> where do I start? You well, know, apparently. like. And I was sort of waiting. I looked around, and I thought, is anyone in the class going to object? Is anyone going to say what? Like, are you kidding me? And nobody did, you know? And and it taught me a lot, I think, because he really he really thought this was okay. And his friends were nodding and saying, yeah, I mean, it's his picture, and he has the right, and it's free speech. And I'm standing there like, wow, okay. So we're not going to talk about her rights, her privacy, her dignity, I mean, any long list of rights that you want to address. And finally, I sort of copped out. It wasn't a very good response. But I said, you know, we don't have a lot of time. But in the beginning, there was darkness. And, you know, if you want to come and talk after, I'm happy to talk to you. But there was just, I really mm-hmm. was stumped. I was like, okay. And and I think I did say something like, well, you know, a girl in a toaster, they're different.
0: <laughs> right, right. I mean, but... What do we do? I mean, this these similar type of feelings one had listening to the Kavanaugh um, try, sort of. What do we do about um, you know what happens to men that they can actually not see any problems with this, with comparing a woman to to a toaster or or whatever you know how they treated um, Dr. Ford and whatever. What what can we actually do?
1: We have to do a lot on all levels, right? I mean, one thing is we really need to disrupt childhood traditions, mores, ideas about what constitutes good masculinity, right? Healthy masculinity. Because right now, in the dominant mode of masculinity that we have, um, there's a certain implicit sexism built into it. And, And so if you think about what people think of as good men, men who provide and protect, I mean, those two words are often used to describe what What masculinity is about, right? Men should use their strength to provide Mm -hmm. and protect. But both imply vulnerability for women, and both actually depend on vulnerability for women. You can only be, you know, responsible for protecting women if they are vulnerable to other males' predation. And, And if you are tasked with providing for women, that means that they can't provide for themselves. And so it becomes a very complex thing for women to say, I want to provide for myself. I want to make my own money. I want to be independent. I don't want to access resources vicariously. That's a real threat to, to masculine identity. Um, but when that's then coupled with women saying, you know what, I actually am subjected to high levels of threat. I can't walk down the street without being harassed. I can't go to work without having this sort of um, sexual innuendo ruin my career um, opportunities. That's a threat, too, because when she says that to the men around her, it's it's not hard to see how that becomes tessellated into, oh, my God, I'm failing to protect. And so doubt and silencing, I have two chapters on doubt and silencing, are logical, psychological responses to hearing women's stories, because to admit that women are telling the truth creates a crisis in masculine identity. And we we need to stop that. Like we, I, we actively need to ungender these emotions and um, a, and to take a step back and think how are we constructing men.
0: I was wondering because this something that gets people riled up on both sides in Sweden all the time is is what we have um, a few gender neutral preschools. As yes. well as pronouns, um, a pronoun like for hen. him and her, hen, Yeah, for example. Yeah. Um, and Jordan Peterson was just here in Stockholm yeah. doing a bunch of stuff, and on the biggest TV shows. I was kind of. When it, how do you feel about something like a g- gender-neutral preschool and those things like that?
1: Well, well, first of all, I think we are clearly in a tide of global masculine crisis and backlash, right? Right. This, this populist authoritarianism is a macho-fascism. It's not just authoritarianism as though everybody experiences it the same way and we have equal numbers of fascist, sort of authoritarian men and women that are leading the charge and defining the nation. Um, in we're, you know, we're not defining the nation in feminine terms, for example. The only time we do that is when we're going to dominate a nation, right? right. And so um, I think that we have to appreciate the fact that This is happening, and it's happening globally, and I think a man like Jordan Peterson is a a symptom of that, right? I mean, he he is welcomed with open arms all over the world because he's confirming uh, the the crisis that people are feeling. Um, I think that focusing on pronouns like hen uh, discounts the immense thought and work that has gone into thinking about childhood education, right? It's easy to dismiss a small three-letter word much easier than taking the time to understand the work that's been done to get to the point where someone would think that that's a good idea. And that's, I Mm -hmm. think, what we need to focus on. Because what I find is that people are, um, it's easy for them to express opinions about gender without any expertise at all, right? Because everybody has an opinion about gender. But those opinions often institutionalize stereotypes that are deeply harmful, and they institutionalize discrimination. And um, we see that all the time. I mean, we see that with expressions like boys will be boys, right? Like boys can't control themselves. Of course boys can control themselves. You know, we know that boys can control themselves. Um, But people are disinclined to believe that they can because it's very threatening to the status quo.
0: So what we should be doing in this small step is to stop saying things like that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think understanding the power of stereotypes is is an easy first step because you can explain that to children all the time. You can explain it while riding a bus and looking at advertising you can explain it when reading books you can explain it if you go to the movies um, there are lots of ways to grow children's critical media skills mm-hmm. the, the problem is adults right right
0: exactly <laughs> it's always the adults. Like, it's the adults the problem is the adults mm-hmm.
1: and so you know you're sitting at a at a dinner party or something and and someone says well I'm really worried that my son is going to be accused of, of rape by a, a lying woman, mm-hmm. you know. And while I understand the the worry, it's really not a, a rational one. It would make a lot more sense to worry, for example, that a son was going to be raped because the chances that he's sexually assaulted are exponentially higher than the chances that he's falsely lying. accused, right. you know. Right, right. So if there's no logic in it. There's no, you know, if, if you just break down what we know um, – it, you, you can confront things, but people also don't know, and they don't want to know often.
0: Right, that's probably the biggest problem.
1: Which is when you you then take on the role of the the feminist killjoy that. <laughs> yeah. You know you're the you know it's exhausting because you you are the person who's saying hey actually it, it, there are facts that are related to what you're saying and they they do not conform with what what you're describing
0: let's talk about this feminist killjoy. Um and just and, and also I mean sort of to be positive about how we actually can use our anger and should use our anger. But I mean it still feels even even in just sort of normal life and not these horrible um examples of of rape and such you're talking about. But but to, to Yes. How, I, I know where my limits are of being the feminist killjoy in an office or in a discussion and or in, in what I do on my show yes. and what topics and and but I still feel like I want to talk about the, these things. But there's always, you know, then the backlash begins immediately. How should I maneuver that?
1: Well, I think this is part of the quality of being uh, ultimately being exhausted by it. Right. You. You need, I think we all have to pick our battles. There are times when it's simply in context not worth it. There's no efficacy in doing it, right? And I think uh, we learn when those times are. And so in some cases, I think, and this is, this is why it's so granular, right? It really does depend on where you are and who you're with. In our day-to-day interactions, I think of it as the sexist at the dinner table, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're sitting there, and here's a person you know, possibly love, or you've known for a long time. Maybe it's actually someone you've just met, and they've just said something that is not only offensive, but actually actively harmful or discriminatory, right? And let's say they've said it in front of a bunch of kids, and you're thinking, and, and I've been in this situation, I'm like, all right, well, these children just heard that. And if I don't say something, they're going to leave this table thinking that that was okay. They're, they're going to actually, right, exactly. they're, you know, they, they, they need a counter-narrative. And, and then I think, all right, well, what's going to be most effective here? And getting angry is maybe not the most effective all the time, right? It is actually better to go down the path of humor, for example, or um, the news. or There are lots of different ways to communicate the same thing. There are, however, times when anger is appropriate. But can I just and, stop
0: you there? Do yes. men think like this?
1: No, I think that... That's um, what are, I mean.
0: You know what I yes. mean? That maneuvering yes. and sort of being very but diplomatic about how you're expressing... But
1: I think that's power, right? Mm-hmm. That is the difference in status. And so if you are a marginalized person... And that may mean that you're marginalized by your color or your sexuality or by your gender or all three, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The weight falls on you to navigate in those ways. And frankly, that's also a conversation we should be having, right? Like if I'm sitting there at at work at a conference table and and that's what's happening, there should be a way for me to say, actually, you know what? I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to navigate this conversation and it's just it's, so
0: exhausting. <laughs> it's
1: so exhausting, right? But but we need to have those conversations. We right. need to be able to say, I'm sitting here trying to navigate this, and I have a feeling that many of you, with, you, you don't intend this, but this is what's happening, and we need to stop here and talk about that. And I know that that's hard to do, and in situations where it's hard to do and where there are real penalties, that's where it's important to find the allies whether there are other people who feel the way you do and can act in solidarity or a mentor or a sponsor with whom you can speak and say, I can't say this because there's going to be this penalty, but can you talk about this, please? Mm-hmm. Because, because we know that that's true as well. Like a woman advocating on her own behalf or on behalf of other women is penalized professionally very exactly. often. Exactly. But a man doing the same for her, not in a paternalistic, chivalrous way, but in a way that he is aware is a form of allyship and sponsorship, he can say it and have many uh, more positive responses.
0: Which is a roundabout way of something that you don't want to be around, or you want to do it yourself, but, I mean, that's where we still are, and that's what we have to do. Yes, we are. Yeah, we do. Um, I, I was interesting because I was watching the documentary on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and she yeah. was saying several times that she taught her mother taught her and all through her career that she would not get angry. And I mean, she had things to get angry about yeah. <laughs> or has had always. Um, how do you feel about her strategy?
1: Well, I mean, I think a lot of us have that strategy. I mean, how often I laugh when I make presentations because I'm like, okay, what are our images of angry people, right? And and if you look at ang- images of angry people, what you get is a bunch of white guys breaking things and screaming and, and like, <laughs> that's what you see in Google, right? right? But but then I say, well, let's think about what an angry woman looks like. And the picture I use is just a woman smiling, right? right? Because in fact... When we think of anger management, it is the management of that explosive, very masculinized anger that implies that men need control. They need to be in control of themselves. But in fact, women are in control all the time. What we need to think about in terms of anger management is what I write about it as being anger competence, which is we need less control. We need to liberate our anger in healthier ways so that it's not mm-hmm. consuming our bodies or causing us pain or debilitating us in our workplaces or in politics. And so, you know, being able, it's like I said with children, being able to label the feeling and then to make meaning of it through whichever way works best, whether you're a writer or, you know, you are better at speaking through things or an artist or a community organizer, you can channel that that feeling, which is incredibly energetic and powerful. But before you can channel it, you have to admit to it. And the problem is that in not showing our anger, we often deny that it exists at all. And those are two different things.
0: We started by talking about sort of how there's a positive of, you know, anger happening and movements happening. What are some of the examples that you see of as of late of just women channeling a, what what should I say, a positive anger to make change?
1: Uh, well, to me, very clearly, it's the the politics that we're in right now. I mean, women in the U.S., at least, are driving the resistance to the Trump administration and to the authoritarian uh, tendencies of the chaotic Republican Party. I mean, they made up, you know, 85 percent of the people calling Congress and sending postcards and organizing local meetings, and they ran for office in unprecedented numbers uh, and that, I think, is all directly related to their immense anger at what Trump's election represented uh, and and what it put on display.
0: And when was the last time you got really angry and and felt, yeah, this is great. I'm I'm I'm. It's completely appropriate to be angry at this. <laughs>
1: So I was in Heathrow Airport two weeks ago, and I was going through security. And you know when you take your coat off and then your belt yeah. off and then your shoes off? I mean, you undress, right? And that is what you're doing. We take this really private act, and, and it's, a, it's done in public like it's just the no- most normal thing on earth. And so I literally had stripped down to my, like, leggings and a T-shirt. And as I walked towards the scanner, the security guy on the other side said, you look beautiful in black. And I thought, whatever, I'm tired. i got to make it to my flight. I'm sure he thinks he's being nice, right? Like, I'm just letting that one go. But as I went to go through the scanner, he said, take a step back. And I thought he just wanted me to wait for some reason, like to let someone else go. But when I stepped back, he folded his arms or something, and he said, and he looked me up and down, and he said, look at that. And immediately all of my sort of hypervigilant instincts kicked in and I looked around and there were six men around me. No, None of the other passengers were women that were about to go through the scanner. And on the other side, there were three other security guys. Mm-hmm. So there were 10 men standing around me. And and I thought, wow, I gave you the benefit of the doubt and then you mm-hmm. you destroyed both. Like that little verbal signaling to these other men to look at me just destroyed any hint that you were harmless to me and so I walked through and I got my clothes and I went to his supervisors who were happened to be two women and I described the situation and I said listen if you have policies against this you need to make sure that those people over there know mm-hmm. because this is unacceptable and the woman's first response to me was who is he I have to mm-hmm, get his mm-hmm. side of the story that is what she said and so then I I, I was kind of I was oddly nervous before. I was tired and and I was like, I just don't want to get into this right now. But when she said that, I got really mad. And I said, there are no two sides. There's one side. It is that he has power and that he's commenting on women's bodies. I'm sure he's doing this not just to me and that's inappropriate. And it's your job, not my job. I don't have to talk to him. You need to talk to him, right? But she, she was so insistent and then I got angrier And as I got angrier, she actually sort of backed down. And and I said, no, this is not an issue of two sides. I am going to go to my plane. And it is a fact that he's so comfortable in this environment, in this milieu, that he can just stand there and say what What he
0: says. What do you say? to Because listening to this, I know exactly what you're saying. But I can also hear in my head someone saying, or a man saying, but he was just, isn't it nice to be able to get a compliment like that, that you're beautiful and and I don't understand why that would piss you off so much and you're tired and I'm telling you you're beautiful. Right. What is it that's not happening in that understanding between those two sides?
1: What I described to them, and then actually when I went to the airport, to the airplane waiting lounge, I, I, wrote, it to, I wrote an article about it mm-hmm. to explain what that was, right? But what it is is this homosociality, which is the signaling between men at the expense of women, right? The, the feeling of hostility in public space. It wasn't just that he did what he did because I was there. He did what he did because the other men were there. That's the point.
0: Exactly. You know,
1: and it doesn't have anything to do with me and how I look. Ultimately, it has to do with his demonstrating that he he had the power to do what he did. I mean, it is his job to look people up and down, but it is not his job to then express his opinion about how they look in a sexualized way. And he conflated the job responsibilities with the male entitlement. And he did that because he could. Right. And so I think that it's fairly straightforward to explain that. Men don't understand because they don't have to understand. And, and they, they have the privilege, and that is what privilege is, of not having to think about it. I mean, I doubt any one of those 10 men had any idea what was happening around them.
0: I mean, even Trump got up the other day at a rally and said something like, I, you can't even tell a woman she's beautiful anymore. I Absolutely.
1: Mean- <laughs> Oh, the horror. Yeah. (laughs) We'll all live. I mean, this is the thing, right? Yeah, we'll survive, but... We'll survive, thank you. We're maneuvering. Yes.
0: (laughs) This was so interesting. I thank you so much for taking your time and for writing your book that I hope many read, men and women, read this book because I think that that's important.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Christina. Delighted to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much to Soraya Shamali. Her book is Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, and it's out now. And thank you so much for listening. Send us your thoughts to popcultureconfidential.com or on Twitter at PodPopCulture. And if you have a moment, take some time to rate and review the show on iTunes. It really helps others who are interested in the same type of topics to find the show. This episode was edited by Katrin Lundell, and I'm Christina Jerlingbiro. See you next week.